Welcome to the Power Your Life radio show with host and success doc, Joanne White. Author, speaker, certified coach, and energy master, Doc White gets to the heart of what matters most. She features guests and experts to help you consciously create more success, health, and wellness in every area of your life, work, and relationships. They'll share their success stories, wisdom, and know-how to help you shine more light onto your day and into your life. Power your life right now. Here's Joanne White. Hello, everyone, and thanks for tuning in to Power Your Life wherever you are on the globe. And I'm Dr. Joanne White, and it is a pleasure to be here today. Parents are incredible. Many parents go through challenges and just do their job of educating and and raising their children with love and beautiful support. And many parents, particularly those parents who have children on the autism spectrum, have some additional challenges that we're going to look at. And yet, these parents not only persevere, they are the champions of their children's lives and help them move ahead. So I'm very excited to interview today Dr. Deborah Moore, who is a psychologist and she was the founder and director of Fall Creek Counseling Associates with offices in the greater Sacramento area for 35 years. Her private practice trained dozens of student therapists and provided specialized evaluations and counseling for many of those impacted by autism. Upon retirement from active practice, Dr. Deb co-authored The Loving Push with the renowned Dr. Temple Grandin. Dr. Deb has also written chapters for The Nine Degrees of Autism, a model for adults newly adjusting to a spectrum diagnosis, and for Internet Addiction in Children and Adolescents. Dr. Deborah Moore facilitates two LinkedIn groups, Autism Spectrum Across the Lifespan and Autism Spectrum Helping Hands Mentors, a resource for anyone seeking or wanting to become a mentor. She was also honored with a Top Autism Solution Writer Award in 2016. Bravo, Dr. Deb. Thank you for being here. Thank you for the opportunity. It's certainly my pleasure. And I have your book, which is a wonderful book that you co-wrote with Dr. Temple Grandin. But I want to go back a little bit. What what was your interest? What what actually got you very much engaged in in really specializing in helping not only children and and adolescents with autism, but also helping professionals who really wanted to go into the field? You know, it's interesting. It was a bit of a fluke. I had a graduate student about, oh, 15, 20 years ago, and she had a client with autism. And, you know, she was just in school. Now, when I was back in school uh, many, many decades ago, I was never introduced to autism. It was not talked about at all, even in graduate school. And she came to supervision one day and said, I think my client has face blindness. I had never heard that term. 
And mm. when I started to learn about it and realized there's this whole world that I was never taught about, I became fascinated by it. So I read every book that I could find that was written. And I read especially not just the academic books, but every memoir. And we didn't have quite as many then, but I'm sure I read about 20 or so and tried to get inside the mind of mainly moms and a few dads were writing memoirs. And I think by doing that, I got a much greater sense. And I started working with some clients and found that I just adored the refreshing honesty and bluntness of them um, (laughs) and that they had you know, beautiful souls. They did have empathy. Uh, they cared greatly about people that they loved and the world. They had wonderful senses of justice and right and wrong. And they had funny senses of absurd humor that I, we had such fun together. So I started to train my students because I realized their just were not enough therapists who really understood this area and uh, started doing some groups and doing lots of teaching of other professionals and I've never stopped and then I got amazingly lucky to co-author with an amazing amazing strong woman Dr. Temple Grandin. Well, that's a great, that's really a great story. I would just, just as a spinoff, when I was teaching children with, with autism and special needs, many of these children were not allowed in public school for a while. And like you said, autism was, was really unheard of. One of the girl, one of the little girls was actually put in a class for deaf because she didn't speak and they thought that she didn't hear. So they didn't really know what to do a lot with, with, with a lot of these kids. And, and hopefully today with people like you and also Temple Grandin, there's, there's a lot more solutions and, and support given not only to professionals but also to parents. So thank you for that. So this book, this is an incredible book, The Loving Push. Tell us about the book. Firstly, why, why the title? It's a very intriguing title. What, why? Who came up with the title, and and what's in the title that's so important? I think the two terms are both equally important in the title. They were chosen very carefully. Children on the autism spectrum, teens, even adults, often need a push from someone else. The executive functioning of taking initiative combined with high levels of sensory overwhelm and often anxiety and some depression creates a situation where left to their own devices, stagnation often results. And these kids are having a really tough time transitioning into adulthood. So that's the push part. And the loving part is, of course, we have to do this in a certain way. And we can't take too many big steps. They have to be baby steps, and they have to be informed steps, and it always has to be done with love. You know, it's so important because many of these children can pick up your frustration, your your emotional 
feelings beyond what you're expressing. And so if it's not done with love, they can feel and sense the resistance. They may not be able to communicate it, but they certainly incorporate it. And, and so I love the title. I think it, you know, I think it really resonates with what needs to be done. So thanks for that, too. Okay, so your book, you have a lot of sort of stories about about people that you've worked with and something for parents that I think is so essential because parents really are the first responders in a way for their children to succeed. What do parents need to do to help their children succeed, especially at a young age? And I'm glad you said that at a young age. You know, our book was primarily geared towards adolescents, but I think parents of any age uh, would benefit by reading it because the earlier you start, obviously, the better. As a clinician, we would get kids coming in at two primary ages. One would be kind of fourth grade. And that's when the academics get tougher, the social skill demands get tougher, and it becomes more apparent that your kid is not keeping up. The other one, though, would be right during that senior year of high school or right after graduation, where suddenly parents realize, oh, my gosh, we got here so fast, and now what do we do? Or the kid would go to college and just not be able to make it, be overwhelmed, and then would go into a depression. And really, uh, everybody in the family was, was scared at, at that point. So I, I plead with parents to please uh, take the suggestions in this book. And no matter what age your child is, I mean, we can talk about toddlers Start putting them into effect now, and then you won't necessarily hit that crisis point with the same kind of intensity or struggle, and you'll be so glad you started earlier. It's often easy, you know, for parents to want to protect their children. All parents want to do that. But when you have a child who's being misunderstood or bullying or, you know, you take to the grocery store and they're having a screaming fit and a meltdown and the other parents are, you know, giving you that eye, you want to just avoid and stop and protect and do anything that you can do. It's oftentimes tempting not to use that as a teaching moment, but to just stop it as quickly as you can. Totally understandable. But we give you ways to use those times, no matter what age your child is, as a teaching moment and therefore start ingraining habits that will become lifelong and make things so much easier, both for your child and for you. So let's examine that a little bit, because many of us have seen children as bystanders. We have seen parents and children in stores, in restaurants, whatever, doing kind of having a meltdown, as you described. What can a parent do? What are some ways that a parent can can kind of instill direction, loving support, and use that as a teaching moment rather than, because I've actually seen whereby parents are apologetic to to the general public and embarrassed about it and just want to move forward and get out of that situation as quickly as possible. Exactly. Well, I think 
trying to not over-explain, but in a very matter-of-fact way, uh, letting others know that my child is, is, this is not about misbehavior right now. Although sometimes it is, and you have to be able to discern the two um, when it's overwhelm and when it's just your kids being a brat, because autistic kids are brats too sometimes. Um, <laughs> but, you know, if we get over the stigma of autism, which we are doing, slowly but surely we are doing, uh, then other people who don't have autistic children, they're just not as educated. And they can be informed a little bit. Some parents carry around little cards that are printed out by, I think, Autism Speaks or some of the other groups. And they just hand it to the person. And that's quite effective. Um, In terms of dealing with the child at the time, one of the things is you don't wait until you get into the grocery store. You spend time repeatedly. And that's an important word because it takes many, many repetitions for all children, but especially for children uh, on the autism scale, uh, spectrum because they don't generalize the same way. That's not the way their brain is wired. So you have to repeat over and over and over, and you have to practice and role play over and over and over. So you practice meltdowns. You tell your child to role play a meltdown, and then you teach them skills. You teach them basic breathing skills. You teach them how to distract. You give them some mantras to say to themselves because they can't learn when they're in the middle of a meltdown, that's expecting way too much. So I love it that that what you're saying is, is kind of do preparatory work beforehand so that your child who is on the spectrum has a, some sort of rehearsal in a way to to recognize what is available to hit, to him or to her in terms of behavior so that 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 can be prevented or at least minimized to some extent. So that's really important. You say that it takes a village. I totally believe that. But what do you mean by that, With especially with families, with kids on the autism spectrum, and especially when oftentimes other people kind of don't want to get too close? Uh I think one of the things that we can do when people don't want to get too close is to swallow if we have embarrassment or pride and let people know that we need them. Sometimes they don't really realize that, and there's no shame in letting people know that we want others involved. We welcome them. It's like starting a business. You go out, you're not going to get referrals unless you let people know you need and are open to referrals. And as a parent, you're not going to get support necessarily unless you let people know, I can use this. It would be really valuable to me. And, you know, going to a professional is wonderful, but professionals are expensive. And not everyone has the resources to do that. And so often you need so many darn professionals to make a team that it becomes just a financial burden to families. But there are high schools, there are community colleges where students have to earn credit. Those are wonderful opportunities to find someone to be a support to your child, to come in and at no cost, just take your child out for a walk, spend a half an hour playing a game with your child, teaching them reciprocity, teaching them a skill, sometimes for the older teenagers, 
taking them to a little cafe, teaching them how to order a cup of coffee, taking them to a movie and just being with them, getting them out of the house. Start with something simple. Like I had a client who would have uh, another teenager come over once a week on Friday evening for a brief period of time. And not my favorite activity, but they would play video games. But that's where they started. That's what he was capable of doing at the time. And that was fine. And then they started to expand. So mentors can be other kids, they can be extended family, they can be uh, folks in church, if you go to have a church or synagogue, they can be teachers, but again, uh, parents have to let the teachers know. Teachers can't read minds, and if they let the teacher know that I could use a little extra help here, Things change. One of the kids in the book that we profiled, well, she's not a kid anymore. I think she's 19 now, um, Cosette. She said that, I think it was third grade, uh, her mom went to the teacher. She was having a really hard time. The teachers were just, she wasn't responsive. She wasn't very verbal very often. And the teachers thought she was being obstinate, and she wasn't. Um, there's not really an obstinate bone in Cosette's body. But, uh right. The teachers didn't understand that. So the mom went and explained. And then the teacher, with Cassette's permission, explained to the class what autism was. And Cassette said that was the best year of her life in, in her academic schooling. And it changed everything. It changed her relationship with the other kids. But the mom had to reach out and do that. Uh, so there are people out there. And every single person that participated in telling their stories to this book, cited mentors and said that it made a vital difference in their life. And it, it's so important not only to the, to the parent, the caregiver, but also to the child and adolescent. And, and I think what you're talking about is so essential because initially, again, when autism wasn't that well known or understood, and like you said, we're getting better about it, parents were kind of closed off and insulated and isolated. And I have a wonderful story about a colleague of mine who actually, she's in New Jersey, what she did is similar to what you were talking about. She had an autistic son, still does, who's much older now, and she started to invite some neighborhood kids in, just a small group, and would give them, you know, they would have a little party and they would have treats. So it was a sort of a way to, to a, sort of a little bit of a come on, to get to be a playmate to her younger child at the time and to also get to understand about autism. What she does now, which I think is incredible, is she actually has a job by going into schools, into school districts, and helping, like what you said that, that um, the parent did with with the teacher helping other children who are going to be mentors, helping them understand about autism and kind of pairing them with autistic kids. So there are many different kinds of 
ways of creating that village and and mentoring that that give these not only give the child or the the adolescent with autism a boost and support but i think it also grows especially if you're utilizing children other children and, and adolescents it also grows them and helps them and i think that that w- one of the children that we were speaking to her remark who was who was a mentor said that she she learned so much about herself and also about how to really be generous and loving and compassionate and so i think the potential for everyone that's involved is is wonderful and and, and really great so thanks for that i think it's important okay kids are especially a lot of kids on the spectrum are doing a lot with video games and sometimes I have one parent who reports I can't get my kid away from this video screen that's all he wants to do so what's the solution because we we want them to be engaged but what happens if there's too much and how do we counteract that Dr. Deb right right problem and I'm not against all video games I enjoy them myself and uh They can be good teaching tools as well. But what we're finding out is that the autistically wired brain is very susceptible to getting into a compulsive pattern or an addicting pattern with video games, especially the boys. And that their behavior goes downhill from there. Their mood goes downhill. They think that they're relaxing and having fun. But if you hook them up and do scans of their physiological uh, reactions, mm. their d- depression is actually going up, their blood pressure is going up, their heart rate's going up. Um, they're not aware of what's happening. And also, they tend to be doing things like they're playing for hours and hours in these multi, um, what they're called massive multiplayer games that go on and on, and they're playing with thousands of other people all around the world 24 hours a day. And these games have no end. It's not like you reach a certain point, you get a certain number of points, and then again, the game ends and you won. You never win. You just keep going. You create an avatar, and you're in this world, and you just keep living in this world. Uh, And unfortunately, kids with autistic spectrum – as we know, they have a great propensity for patterns and for getting into rigid thinking, repetitive and flexible thinking. And the gaming of this sort seems to increase that. And the other thing is that every hour that your kid's on the video game is an hour that they could be spending interacting with someone, um, learning social skills or developing whatever their special interests are uh, or you know, being exposed to a brand new skill. Uh, so I think parents haven't quite, and professionals haven't either, really grasped the dangerous territory that we're in with these particular games. Um, the players will create avatars. They'll select all of their characteristics that they want to have. And sometimes they can't really distinguish, after they've played enough, the difference between real life and the game, and if we have them take brain scans, I think this is scary and fascinating, they, there's, their brains light up more when they're interacting as an avatar than they do when they're interacting with a real person. And Why one of is the that? Tragic, uh, because I think there's probably less anxiety 
and that they have done it so much that they're just over-identified. You know, having an avatar, a lot of the kids will pick a good guy avatar so that they can fight the bad guys because they've been bullied. And this is a time that they, maybe for the first time in their life, feel in control, feel like they can put their belief system of right and wrong into place. And that's very compelling. And they can do it in an isolated way in their bedroom, behind closed doors. And that's something we definitely recommend to parents is open the door, get the computer out of the bedroom as a first step. Put it in a family space so that you can really see what's going on. Um, but I was going to say just just briefly to to really make this hit home, one of the tragic stories that we included, and it's not the only one out there in this book, was I, I spoke with a mom whose son got addicted to video games and ended up suiciding uh, in front uh. of the game with the game still playing. She had to break down the door and found him, and he had shot himself. And her belief, and I think she's, she's right, is that he had so identified with this game and with his avatar that when another avatar in the game rejected him mm. and broke up, broke up with him, he took it as real life, and it was too much. And he had already become more and more depressed the more and more he played. And... Of course, you know, it's it's just, it's so tragic and so sad, and it's, I think it is avoidable, but we have to be very careful. We have to not hand our three-year-olds our phones to let them start this pattern of going to the screen to relieve their anxiety. We have to give them other skills to do it. Um, we're starting to get some programs for kids who are really addicted. Because the thing is, uh, it's easy to excuse your kid and say, well, all kids like video games and so forth. But but again, for the autistic brain, it's not the same. And they lose the sometimes little motivation that they had to get out into the world. And it's one thing when they're 11. It's another thing when they're 21 or 31. And they're still sitting at home and relying on parents and spending their days in the room. And again, everyone I interviewed for the book who told their real stories, and I thought, by the way, I have to say, it was so brave of all of these eight people to and their families to share their stories, and they were very self-disclosing. They let us use photos. Um, they're my heroes. Uh, but, you know, they all, 100% of them said that video gaming had been an issue for them. And they all recommended, I said to them, what would you do as a parent? And they all said, put restrictions early. Which is so very important. But how, did, how does a parent do that? You, your child is, is fascinated by the video gaming and, and wants to participate. And so there he or she has a meltdown, starts screeching, starts act whatever you know whatever behavior they're doing to to get their way and also to demonstrate that they that they're not happy with with what's going on how do how does a parent get past that Dr. Deb to be able to have their their child recognize that you know this is the game this is the time for the video now we do something else whatever it is to 
be able to move through that with with less tension. Right. Uh, and you're right. It's very, very tough. Uh, there's going to be tension. I think start out with that mindset that it's going to get worse before it gets better so that you're not as inclined to give in. Uh, you can't make your kid go cold turkey, and there's no need for most kids to do that. So what I recommend is that, first of all, you talk to your child in a calm, at a calm time, and you tell them, you educate them, and you use some of the information, for instance, in the book about how the game developers are manipulating them, because autistic kids do not like to be manipulated. They're very logical, and they don't have this information. And the game developers, most of them, uh, the massive multiplayer games, they have spent tons of money hiring, unfortunately, psychologists uh, and professionals to create as an addicting game as possible. They will not let their own children play these games. Uh, And if your kid understands that, some of the kids will then get... um, kind of angry about that and that that helps set the stage and then you tell them that we're we're going we're not going to take games away from you but we're going to get it at a healthy level so we're going to start a program and you're not going to like it probably it's going to be really tough so first of all what we're going to do is we're going to take a couple of weeks and we're just going to learn more so teach me about your game teach me about your avatar and why you picked them and what you like about it And then let's chart when you play, how long you play, what your mood is when you start, what your mood is after you finish, what kind of behaviors trigger you to want to start, what your behaviors are after the game. And you collect that information so that you can see it and your child can see it too. And then about two games or two weeks in, you start to set some limits on time. And you also, and this is really, really important, you have to create substitute activities. You can't let your child be be expected to do that on on their own. So you distract your child. You have something that you talk about ahead of time that you're going to do. And you make sure, again, that you combine the other activities, other exposures, and getting the computer out of the bedroom. And when they have a meltdown, which they probably will, unless there's a safety concern, you ignore it. If there is a safety concern, and sometimes there, there is, but you tell the child ahead of time, the teenager ahead of time, you, you may be very, very upset when we do this. You may want to break <laughs> things. You may want to threaten me. You may want to threaten that you're going to hurt yourself. And if you do that, and this may sound like strong words, but I've been there too many times with too many families. If you do that, any of those three things, we're going to call the police. And then you do it. But yeah, if it's follow not through is really issue, important. You follow through because there's a concept called intermittent reinforcement that I I think is very helpful for parents to know about. And that it's the concept that all casinos rely on. If once in a while you reward someone, that's the most powerful way to encourage Mm -hmm. a behavior. 
So the slot machines are designed that once in a while they give you a little payout. So if, you're, if your child is begging and begging and screaming and crying and you give in on the 14th time, the other 13 don't count. Amazing. It's the 14th <laughs> time. Yeah. It is so powerful and so hard. So intermittent reinforcement, branded into your brain, don't give in. You know, it's interesting because because many of the reinforcements that teachers use in in school they're not intermittent at all. It's when it's when it's it's the repetitious reinforcement. And and what you're saying is something that's really much very effective because I know that. And 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 not only is it effective, but it also it doesn't have to happen every single time because and that's what makes it so powerful like you said you have so many stories in the book and and you know you just relate one about the child with committing suicide what about some of the successes because there are many successes and there are many many children on the autism spectrum who have moved into college and into jobs and into activities that they love and are making incredible contributions for all of us, and yet oftentimes they go unsung. So tell us a little bit about the success stories in the book, Dr. Deb. I'd love to do that. I'd also like to say that you know we did not select kids who were only having success. All of the kids, all of the folks in here had real struggles, and many of them continue to struggle. We didn't want to be unrealistic about this. Um but they're making progress. So uh, Patrick was one of my clients who I worked with for a number of years. And Patrick was very fortunate to have uh, parents who cared deeply. But the fact is, they couldn't do it all by themselves. His, his mom was also on the spectrum and was struggling. And his dad was working his butt off and came home exhausted every night. And fortunately, they had an aunt, uh, Patrick had an aunt, who took Patrick as much as possible under her wing and would, without any professional training, just knew intuitively to do some of these things. And so, for instance, um, when I first met Patrick, he wouldn't even come into the room by himself. Um, he had tried to go to college and did not did not make it and had gone into retreat mode as a result. His anxiety was up, his depression was up. He wasn't going out. He wasn't doing anything. Um, his aunt realized that, tried to get him to do things. For instance, he was afraid to go out into a public restaurant. And she, but he loved to eat. <laughs> <laughs> so she would take him out even when when he was resistant and they would go she would pick places that only had menus on the wall um because that mm. made it a little bit easier and right. he he would at first he would be he would just act helpless and he would start to cry and he would say I'm not going to eat and he would freeze and he couldn't make a decision decisions are tough and mm-hmm. she would say you know Patrick there's no rush we could take our time and he would kind of go to the back of the room 
And she would say, okay, we're going to walk up to the menu again. I want you to search your brain. I want you to see, to breathe, and I just want you to pick an option. And then she would have him look around the place and try to get him out of his tunnel vision by noticing other people and getting past the anxiety. But she really had to push, and she had to do this many, many, many times. And it worked. It gradually worked. He would try new foods. I would have him tell me about what he had tried in therapy. And one day, I remember he came in, and he goes, okay, I got some new foods. And he says, I discovered <laughs> dim sum and blue Ooh. cheese and feta cheese. And I'm like, wow. <laughs> and now he says, and there's a quote in the book, he says, salmon was my gateway food. <laughs> and he goes, oh, my God. Salmon is delicious. And he says, now I get kind of crazy around salmon. And there's so many <laughs> kinds of fish out there. So now he goes into the restaurants by himself. He can do the restaurants that have uh, regular menus. He will often ask the waitress what they recommend. That's helpful to him, and that's great. Wow. Um, he will use the restroom and the bathroom by himself. He will sometimes strike up a conversation with somebody else coming out of the restroom. A huge change, but it took not giving in because he did not, not, not want to do that. Same thing with his driving. He did not want to learn how to drive. And I knew that this is really important, and I thought that he was capable of it. I thought he had the, the hand-eye skills to do it. Not all kids on the spectrum do, but I found that there's a fair number who are capable of it, and it's safe for them but they're not pushed to do it. And it really limits their ability to get right. out in the world and to get a, a job. We took, oh, I don't know. It was a year, two years, and that's okay. It can take longer. Temple talks about just driving the car up and down, up and down her aunt's driveway for the longest mm -hmm. period of time until she got used, desensitized to it. Well, Patrick, we, we found him someone familiar a little bit with autism who was patient. Uh, his dad took him out. His aunt took him out. But he still failed the first test because he was so anxious. And he swore he was never, ever, ever going to do that again. So we let him have his feelings, talked about those. And then months later, many months later, he took the exam again. He passed. The kid drives has driven now from Sacramento to San Francisco. Wow. And from Sacramento to Los Angeles. <laughs> it's pretty amazing because if you saw him after at the beginning you would have never thought this possible. Also, the reason he drove to Los Angeles is because he was going to meet with one of the, uh the well-known voiceover artist in LA because it turns out ah. that Patrick as as a number of kids on the spectrum is a great mimic mm -hmm. he has perfect pitch which many kids on the spectrum do much more than the average they become great piano tuners it's a great great um, job for kids on the spectrum uh, and he started doing demos of his work he's actually gotten a couple of paid gigs now and we don't know if that's going to ever pay his way, so to speak, but it certainly has been something that got him off the video games. He was totally addicted when he first started working with me. He still plays, but not that much. 
He spends time recording demos, looking for jobs, putting in applications. He volunteered at Goodwill for a while. To me, that's a huge success story. He still struggles, and that's okay. But he has come so far. You know, that's so wonderful because not only is he not doing so much with the video game gaming, but he's also feeling the confidence because that takes a lot of confidence to do the demos and, and to, to drive and to, so, so bravo to him and to, and to the people like you who supported him. I think that that's wonderful. We only have a couple of minutes and I could go on with this because this is such a special topic to me. What, we talk a lot about, but in the in the story that you just gave, the the initial resistance that he had to doing certain things, driving and and the child with eating and whatever. So, what do parents, not only parents but professionals who are working with with kids on the spectrum, what do they need to do, Doctor Deb, when they encounter the level of resistance that that's kind of stopping a child who probably has the skills and the know-how to be able to move forward, but they just won't or don't. What do we have to do? Right, right. Uh, first of all, if you haven't told your kid about the diagnosis, and some parents still haven't, I think it's very important to do that so that they understand and they get educated so that you have them on the team. And there's hmm. lots of great YouTube videos that are done by kids on the spectrum. Uh, there's written information. Just you, know, you could do a short one page at the most. They can take some quizzes on the Internet. And then together you can, you can work on this. Um, you want to evaluate because there are some kids who the sensory overload is really a huge part of it and you don't realize it. So – uh, get an occupational therapist or find a instrument on the internet and just yourself go through and address that first because a brain can't learn when it's overwhelmed by too much sensory input. And so uh, make adjustments if necessary. A lot of the kids in the book made adjustments. Some of them wore headphones. Some of them wore glasses uh, with tinted color to keep the light down. Some wore visors or caps during school, um, changed out uh, light bulbs from fluorescence to dimmer lighting. When we did our social skills group, we always dimmed the lights for the meeting. Um, one of the people in the book, Sarah, got a service dog, was a wonderful aid for her when she was learning new skills, kept her anxiety level down. Um, in addition, again, I want to repeat, not giving in, not creating that intermittent reinforcement is so, so very important. Um, it, make sure your child doesn't have a level of anxiety once the sensory issues are taken care of that is just biological. Uh, it can come – I look at autistic kids as having some degree of PTSD almost always mm -hmm. because there is – the rare child who has not been bullied. Now, that's not the classic definition of PTSD, but it's very harmful, and it can create a level of chronic anxiety that becomes embedded. So once in a while, these kids can really benefit from a very low dose 
of an antidepressant, which also hits the anxiety. They don't have to be depressed, but it lets them learn the new skill. It, it lowers the rate of meltdowns tremendously. So do all of these things first. Put these things into place first. And, and then you go in and you teach your, your child self-soothing skills. And just as importantly, you teach yourself self-soothing skills and you get yourself support as well. There's a couple of concepts that we don't have time to go into, but I go into in great detail in the book about how to cope. There's a whole chapter called Coping with Resistance, Apathy, and Fear. And it has a lot of tips in there about how to walk through these in greater detail. It's important to remember Brene Brown, um, who's a, a great, if you, people haven't seen her uh, YouTube, just check her out. It's Brene Brown. She says hope is a function of struggle. And I think that's so true. You prepare that it's going to be a struggle. Hope is, is something that is an action. It's not an attitude. It's an actual action. You have to expose, expose, expose your child to techniques, and you repeat role play over and over, make it part of the lifestyle, and lovingly push them every day. You know, you are such an incredible resource, and we are at a time left, and you have so much information, not just in this book, The Loving Push, but in so many things that you do. So thank you so much for who you are. Tell people, Dr. Deb, how they could get a hold of you, how they could purchase The Loving Push, and anything else that they need as parents and professionals to really learn how to support kids with autism. Not just kids, adolescents, adults. Yeah, everybody. Um, The Loving Push can be bought through the publisher, which is Future Horizons, or it can be bought on Amazon, and it's in most bookstores. Uh, And please share it with other families, uh, because a lot of times people just don't have the resources. It's in many libraries as well. I've tried to get it into libraries so that it's free for people. It's available also as an e-book. And in addition to that, I would advise that people join some of the groups on LinkedIn. There are a number of autism groups. I facilitate two of them, but there are many other excellent ones as well, specifically for parents. Mine is called Autism Spectrum Across the Lifespan, because I think sometimes we forget once adolescence is reached. And it's, it's a lifelong uh, brain wiring. So we need to work with adults as well. And the other one I do is, as you mentioned at the beginning, is the uh, mentoring group called Helping Hands. And it's a place that you can look and see if there's anybody in your local area who would like to mentor or help in whatever way. And then you can, in a very informal way, set something up that meets the needs of your child. If your child has issues with gaming that you think are compulsive or addicting. There's a new book coming out edited by Dr. Kimberly Young, who's kind of the the first person to really alert us to internet addiction and to, to even coin the term. And I did a chapter specifically devoted to the issue and autism. Wonderful. Um, 
with so many resources, make use of them and and share the information with others because the more that everyone understands, the better chance our kids have. Wonderful. Dr. Deb, Dr. Deborah Moore, the loving push, what's holding ASD kids back and how to change it. You are a wonderful resource. Thank you so much for your time and for all that you do and for the support of so many magical youth, children, and adults. Thank you so much for the opportunity to speak with you. My pleasure. Have a blessed day. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. So remember, the resources that Dr. Deborah Moore were talking about are really important and can help you and your child. And it's not, not, I believe it's not just for parents. I think that many educators can benefit from some of, from finding out more about gaming and about behaviors and really getting in touch with what autism is really about. And I know that I have a background in working with children with autism and special needs. And many of the tools that I learned and needed to utilize with these kids, I did not learn necessarily at the time in graduate school. So so I encourage you, because there are so many resources, to really take advantage of them. And remember, the reason this show is called Power Your Life is because you, whether you're a parent or or a professional or whatever you do in terms of of making your life and other people's lives better, you have the ability to transform and to change your life, even if it's just one small step at a time. So do that. Do something small today that empowers you and maybe even somebody else. We're shifting gears, and next week, June 28th, I have Anne Deidre, who is going to talk about how to awaken and connect to your inner wisdom. So stay tuned. And if you missed anything about the show today, you can always find it on Blog Talk Radio or on my website, docwhite.org. Thanks so much for being you, and thank you for tuning in. Have a special day wherever you are. You've been listening to the Power Your Life radio show with host and author, Dr. Joanne White. Listen often and spread the word about the upbeat show to enrich you and grow your life in the direction you desire. Listen again and again and visit DocWhite.org for more information and find out how Dr. Joanne can benefit you. Thank you for sharing your day with us and stay tuned for more exciting guests and events to come.